You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Where's Wilson? Wilson, where are you? Wilson! 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 Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Space Time Mind. This is Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. And before we get on with the rest of the show, there's a little bit of business I wanted to take care of. First, I wanted to express uh, gratitude and excitement about a recent shout out that we got at uh, the very bad wizards podcast tamler summers from the very bad wizards podcast gave a very nice shout out to space time mind and hearing tamler say space time mind yeah space time mind was almost as cool as the one time that morgan freeman said the new york consciousness collective but anyway uh if you're listening to space time mind but not very bad wizards you should go check it out. Second bit of business is to let you uh, know that we are on Twitter. SpaceTimeMind99 is our Twitter handle. Please go follow us on Twitter and uh, check out our, our tweets and our toots. Also, SpaceTimeMind.com is a webpage that's got all sorts of surplus material. You can see the videos that the podcast is based on. There's a blog. You can leave comments there. Please also rate us on iTunes. Why? Why should you do that? Are we going to make money? Uh, no, I don't think so. But the more ratings we get, the more uh, our podcast shows up in searches for things like philosophy and science. So help uh, educate your uh, fellow human beings and rate us on iTunes. Thank you very much. And on with the show. We have a very special guest, uh, Professor Laura Beatty from the psychology department at LaGuardia Community College, mm-hmm. is that correct? Welcome to Space Time Mind. Well, thank you. You're our first psychologist. <laughs> Welcome, Laura. So I was just going to ask Laura for a second here. She tell us a little bit about what kind of approach she takes and what she does. Well, I'm a developmental psychologist uh, to start off with, meaning I'm actually interested in how people change systematically. Um, I'm primarily a Vygotskyan kind of following what is called cultural historical activity theory, which is like basically three different names trying to make one theoretical perspective out of it. And the big thing is that everything we do is shaped by the cultures we live in. It's mediated by the artifacts we use, including words. You you never stop developing, basically. So if you look at the development of a concept, that 
you, you never stop developing it because you keep adding to and subtracting from. By what do you mean by that? So like my concept of water uh, seems what have added much to that recently. <laughs> well, come um, on, Richard. <laughs> There's vitamin water now. <laughs> to some extent, all of your and this is not a phenomenological thing, but all of your experiences with water in small ways change that. But you're also going to learn maybe more about the chemistry of water or the you know um, how it plays out in our bodies, how climate change is affecting water on the planet, and all of those are going to slightly change your understanding of that basic concept. I've been trying to base my idea of a concept on the way Vygotsky talked about the development of, a, of concepts. By the way, can I just interrupt you? Could you, could you pretend that Pete and I know, I mean really pretend, that <laughs> Pete and I know nothing about Vygotsky <laughs> and just tell us a little bit about you know the basics? Well, I have like a vague understanding of Vygotsky, but I, I don't really know that much about it to be honest. Pete, I don't know about you, Pete. I mean, I shouldn't speak for you. I, I, yeah, I, you know, I can't. I don't really know what would distinguish Vygotsky from Piaget. Okay. Well, that's so it's all lumped together in my head. Yeah, me too. It's interesting because in the U.S., Vygotsky became known as an alternative to Piaget. He and while he was Marxist, he wasn't the right kind of Marxist. Or there's different stories out there. <laughs> he played around with intelligence tests, which was a big no-no, and so I don't know what who to believe exactly, but um. Most of his writings weren't available until more recently. So it wasn't until the 70s that most of his writing became available. So in the U.S., he's really seen as an alternative to Piaget because Piaget basically said, you know, children have stages. You can't affect it. You just need to give them good toys and step back and, and let them do their stuff. Vygotsky, <laughs> however, said that the way we teach them um, – we actually bring about development. While Piaget argued you can't have abstract thinking until adolescence, with Vygotsky we can see that you know there is some abstract thinking before that. It may not be until adolescence that, as he said it, that conceptual thinking, i.e. abstract thinking, kind of takes over and becomes the dominant way of thinking. But um, there can be some abstract thinking earlier, or if uh, because of circumstances, it could happen later also. It's about the circumstances, though. Uh, really? So abstract thinking, what does that mean? Because it's doing math abstract thinking? Because um, I was doing math before adolescence. Right. Well, I always oversimplify it to algebra <laughs> um, because you know, arithmetic is still fairly concrete, and this is the way Piaget looked at it, that, you know, in the concrete operational stage, kids can do pretty advanced stuff. They're pretty logical, but they kind of need the things in front of them. They need things to manipulate. Right. So in adolescence, and for Piaget that starts at 11, that's when we can start sitting back and saying, oh, now I can imagine the cup of water being poured into another, um, I don't actually have to see it. That's interesting. I know I don't spend a lot of time with kids, and really I've never even seen a human child in real life, I, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Although now that I remember it, I remember, Pete, that you were here at my house um, when the earthquake, that little earthquake hit, remember? 
We were, I mean, it was a serious earthquake. We were all playing uh, music over at Richard's and doing yeah. musician things. And then, uh, and then the whole house shook, and it was clear that it was an earthquake. And we stepped outside, because I think you're supposed to do that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Well, I didn't know it was an earthquake. I thought it was a terrorist attack, actually. I wasn't sure what it was at first. It was just a big shaking. Yeah. So, Betty, when we step outside, we see everyone else stepping outside simultaneously. And we're just kind of marveling at the chaos and wondering. You know, because, I mean, we could, the New York skyline is not far away. It could have been the Cloverfield monster, for all we knew. <laughs> and then, you know, as, our, as we, were, like, we were gathering our wits, this uh, distraught Polish woman uh, came up to us, and I guess I'm the most responsible looking of this group. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We are wearing a tie right now, actually. <laughs> and uh, she handed me a little baby, like, you know, a little little guy in diapers. And then there was a toddler, uh, <laughs> a, a little uh, girl. Uh, and then she just walked away. She turned like, around and walked away. Yeah, she, I, she explained something to me that probably would have made perfect sense if I spoke Polish. <laughs> exactly. And then she walked away. And then I'm wondering, <laughs> like, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah, Pete turned to me. He's like, she's coming back, right? Oh, oh my God. She did come back. She went inside to check the house. Yeah. So anyway, my point was, I know that's a distraction. My point was that that's about the closest that I've come to an actual human infant in, in the near past. Um, and so I only have my own case kind of to go on here. And, and uh, I, I guess, yeah, I don't know if that's the best case or not. But I do see like that this sounds to me like Plato's line. Um, so that Plato thinks that, you know, he's describing geometry, for instance, uh, and the way you start doing geometry is by reasoning about figures that are drawn on paper or, you know, whatever you happen to have them drawn on, but you're using the figure to stand for, you know, you're looking at this right triangle and you're doing Pythagorean uh, theorem on it and you're using that right triangle to stand for right, right triangles in general or triangularity. And um, that, so that sounds to me like the difference between the concrete operational phase and the, um, the next abstract higher level phase. Although Plato wasn't talking about a, a child's development, he was talking about philosophical development or the way that one um, rational development works. But it sounds a bit similar. Uh, but so what, so what you were saying is that you deny that, though. Well, I think um, – I, mean, I think – Piaget made a lot of good points and so forth, but um, it became very clear when people started doing research with um, uh, indigenous people around the world, i.e. people not from industrialized countries um, okay. who are illiterate, that it, it seemed they weren't reaching Piaget's uh, formal operational stage. They were not thinking in the abstract. They could not uh, deduce one thing from another. Um, or at least they were unwilling to. Uh, it's interesting that you can do these tasks if, if they're put in the right way. Um, and that has, I think, relevance for standardized tests, for instance. Um, people perform poorly on, let's say, the SAT or GRE or whatever, and, and it may simply be because they are not, you know, part of the right culture, knowing the right, um, so I, the questions might be phrased in such a way that alienates them, let's say. Um, so I agree with that. At the same time, though, I think that there's something important about holding them to that standard. So I, I, I don't want to go too far the other way. 
uh, in the sense that, yeah, I value abstract. I mean, my whole life is based on abstract reasoning, I, or at least I like to think that. Um, I'm maybe deluding myself, but but I do think that if if you if it's hard, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of times there's this attitude in higher education that you know, if there are people performing poorly at something, that means you need to change it so they can do better at it. Yeah. Um, whereas I sometimes feel like no, they need to change it so they can do better at it. And I'm not sure that I, you know, that that the thing that the, you need to change the height of the bar that they jump over rather than improve their ability to jump. Well, that's that is specifically some of the issues Vygotsky was facing as the Soviet Union was taking over more and more countries and um, the peasants, gee, weren't able to do the same things that the people living in the cities could. Right. And if we're going to count everybody as equal, then how are we, if we're going to truly have an egalitarian society, how do we understand that? How do we make sense of that? Um, when obviously some people can do things that others can't. And so it becomes essential to understand that it's really our experiences that open certain doors but keep others closed. So so, so let me just see if I understand this. Uh, if, if According to a Vygotskian, could mm -hmm. you take a, um, a nine-year-old and have them do algebra? I mean, that's the theory. That's what this is. I mean, that's the upshot of this, right? Is that you could teach this kind of abstract reasoning to a person no matter what their stage of development, if they're healthy and functioning? Well, you'd have to build up to it, of course, because there's other knowledge you need before. But yes, you could. I mean, my, my older daughter, who's 15 now, she was, you know, her father's a mathematician. So yeah, she was doing algebra very young and she understood at five what the concept of zero is and supposedly the concept of zero is really difficult and I think that sometimes we make it difficult <laughs> because zero seems pretty obvious to me if you're talking about how many cookies do you have you know yeah. and I, I think that uh, that's a concept kids can get <laughs> easily if you treat them like they're intelligent beings is yeah, it part of being a Vygotskian that, there, that, that you don't think there's any genetic there's going to be any variation to no, genetic predisposition? Obviously, obviously there's some genetic variation. I mean, Vygotsky didn't deal with that, and the fact is that my daughter is really bright and very good in math. Yeah. Uh, but some of that has to do with the fact that she had a father doing algebra problems with her when she was five. Right. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, this is something I know from being working in your class with you that um, that it's a little bit of both. That I think that's the kind of standard view that psychologists have at this. I think it's sort of obvious. It was obvious always, but now I think that they. It's been. It's sort of accepted <laughs> by those who write textbooks and so forth that uh, that there's some genetic factors and some environmental factors, right? Don't or. This is one of the issues Vygotsky talked about also, and it continues to be one of the mistakes that we make is that it's not nature or nurture, but it's about how culture reshapes biology. Right. Uh, so that's interesting. Can I ask you, how do you, how do you guys feel, I mean, Vygotskians or in general this approach, uh, feel towards cognitive enhancement? So, you know, at this point, you know, you can take you. We have very limited ability to do that, but we have some ability to do that. I mean, Adderall is um, um, an enhancer for memory, for uh, cognitive functions, and there are other ones too. 
So is this, I mean, can we level the playing field through enhancement or uh, is this a bad thing? I'm, I'm for it, by the way. I, I think that I'm, I'm, a, I'm in some sense a transhumanist, so I think that um, we're being held back uh, by being connected to the animal kingdom um, and that a lot of uh, what, uh, what, what problems with the world in general are are due to the large, um, this is speculation, but I think that uh, it's due to the large influence that kind of mammalian deep structures of the brain, unconscious processes that go way back to, you know, f fight or flight, survival type stuff. And then on top of that, some rational stuff, which is, you know, not doing much at the moment, <laughs> uh, but has potential to do a lot. And so I hope that we could transcend the bottom half of the bottom part of the brain with the by building on top of the top part of the brain. So I'm all for that. But I wonder what what you do. You think there's some dangers there? What what do you think about this kind of stuff? Well, I would I would worry about the dangers, side effects, etc. So far, we still really do need our bodies to function. Um, I don't know that Vygotsky had a he, – he died too long ago to have too much of an opinion on that one. But he worked closely with Luria, who's pretty big in uh, neuropsychology. Um, it was the safer route to go under Stalin was the, yeah. the brain. Um, but, 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 I mean, so is there any uh, – what I was wondering about the Vygotskyan approach, I guess I was asking about, is the sort of – social justice nature or aspect of this stuff? I was wondering if that is like a... Yes, he, I mean, okay, there's some disagreement on this. Because there are some who claim he wasn't really Marxist, he just did that because he had to. But it seems pretty clear to a number of authors, and I'm pretty convinced also, that um, he really um, saw communism as a way to make humanism possible, that everybody could extend themselves and uh, there'd be time for everybody to really develop um, higher mental functioning. You don't have to have those uneducated people collecting the garbage. They, you know, this is a new. He saw it as a great experiment, and I think was kind of disappointed by the way things went. But um, uh, he really seemed to. Psychology as a way of revolutionizing the world. Um, so I know one person from the Graduate Center, Anna Stetsinko, who has particularly tried to combine um, Vygotsky and Ferrer. Um, if you're familiar with his work at all, um, can't think of the famous book, but he saw pedagogy as revolutionary. That we should be teaching people to be free. Okay. Yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> by the way, this might be monitored by the uh, NSA and the FBI, so be careful yeah. with, with your radical talk. <laughs> well, this brings me back to my other the, – the thing I was talking about earlier, which was the cognitive enhancement issue. You know, because in, in, the, fut in the future, the more we understand the mechanics of the brain, I think the more we're going to be able to have these kind of um, fine-tuned adjustments – where we discover better ways to do this. So, I mean, I, you know, drinking a cup of coffee in the morning helps me think. So, you know, why couldn't taking Adderall plus plus plus, um, which is the better, more refined version of Adderall, help us deal with these kinds of things too? I mean, I, 
I, I hope, I mean, you know, the 70s pro promised us better living through chemistry. I want to see that realized. <laughs> well, on some level, I would argue that it's really no different than the invention of writing or the invention of a computer yep. uh, to supplement what we can do with uh, what we're born with. Some people get really upset about this and think that uh, it's somehow cheating or something like that. That if you if you take if you you know in the in the most fictional version of this you take a pill that in, expands your memory four times or something like that, that people say oh well then you know but what about the people who worked really hard to improve their memories and they learn all these mnemonic devices and they chunk numbers and they associate stories and, and all these tricks and years of training what about them? To which I say yeah good for them I mean you know um, it used to be the case that you had to take a wagon from here to California. And now I get on a plane, and nobody is standing there saying, "Hey, what about all those people who the, the trip meant something? It took four months, and you get the bond." We so yeah, things change. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would definitely, you know, I, I wouldn't mind a USB port on my head. It would just, <laughs> you know, I could deal with that. But um, I mean, I, 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 I would be concerned about the side effects because there's a trade-off with everything. Well, there's no trade-off with glasses. No. Was there? There's a few. You get like little sore spots on your nose right here. Yeah, it's a real nuisance when you want to like go do stuff, and I, you know, I have to take my glasses off to read. It, it's a nuisance. Okay, a new. Well, I can handle a little bit, but I see what you're saying. There's always a downside, and the question is always going to be how much of a balance uh, can we do? Well, I don't know. I was reading something. I think it was was a review of this book. Did you see this, Pete? Just this morning in the Notre Dame Philosophical Reviews. What was this? Uh, a truly human enhancement or something like that? And one of the main arguments in this book was that if we create something that's, that dwarfs our intelligence, um, that it that thing might look at us the way we look at animals, and it might therefore feel morally justified in treating us the way we treat animals. And therefore, we should never build anything smarter than us to avoid us being treated like the way we treat animals. Maybe we should just treat animals better. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> I think we should build better animals. I agree. You know what? I was thinking about this when I was reading the article. I was thinking that, you know, if you could just get – I mean, animals really what they are are like children. Um, and, uh, you know, a pig has an IQ level. I know IQs are level test are bullshit, whatever, still. They have the IQ level of, of a four-year-old at least um, as far as t cognitive task-solving problems go. Uh, now, maybe if you – What pigs, animals? Pigs. Pigs have an IQ of a human four-year-old? Yes. Yeah, four-year-olds aren't, aren't very smart. I mean, look, they don't have the, the – I okay. mean, by IQ, what I mean is that they can solve certain spatial problems. Uh, okay. Uh, so pigs are very intelligent. Um, uh, in certain respects, um, but they don't get to vocalize. So I was thinking, if we if we could just enhance them a tiny bit, to where pigs could say like, you know, hey, fuck <laughs> off, don't kill, <laughs> like live, <laughs> then I think it would change everything. I mean, I think small amounts of an of enhancements to animals would would make a huge difference. Uh, in the way oh what we think we could do to them. You guys, so there's this general concept in, uh, it's like a subgenre of science fiction called uplift. Oh, huh. Probably one of the most famous uplift stories is Planet of the Apes. Oh, and there are a lot of different oh. examples of uplift. There's some stories in which people go around and they use cybernetics to enhance the intelligence of chimpanzees and dolphins. 
and the chimpanzees and dolphins become, you know, they have like a you know human level intelligence, and they enter into the the Galactic Federation. Of this Earth is a whole genre of science fiction. It's a subgenre of of science fiction that uplifts <laughs> stories. One of my favorite. I'm not aware of this one. No. I teach a class on philosophy and science fiction. So I've become an expert on on some of this stuff recently. I know the one about there's one movie about sharks. I get super intelligent or something, and then they like eat. Yeah. I forgot the name of that. We could look it up though. So uh, one of my favorite uplift stories is a short story by the uh, cyberpunk science fiction author Bruce Sterling, and. Um, I think the name, I, I forgot exactly, the. I think the name of the story was Our Neural Chernobyl. I, I think I got the right story. But anyway, so somebody, some biochemist uh, or, uh, you know, some futurized scientist, they figure out this, um, they figure out this, like, chemical or gene therapy thing that w if administered to uh, a vertebrate will enhance its uh, central nervous system functioning and, and raise it, you know, raise its IQ. And he also figures out a way of delivering this um, via a virus, a viral vector, so it becomes a disease. I like where this is going. Yeah. I don't know if that's a disease, really, actually. Well, I mean, it, it, it operates the way a virus would operate, so it distributes this thing along the same mechanisms that other kinds of viruses. It's an interspecial virus. Uh, and a lot of people are talking, like working on this right now, trying to use um, wow. viruses to deliver medicines. Or, or, or uh, you know, beneficial therapies. Yeah, exactly. This, this person, right. it's kind of an act of eco-terrorism or something like that. But one of the results of it is like the, uh, in various farming communities, the, the farmers have to set up these like um, embassies so they can uh, establish a political... Uh, Negotiate <laughs> with the animals. Yeah, political negotiations <laughs> with the local raccoons. <laughs> you know, the raccoons are raiding the crops and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I like it. Well, yeah. I was, I've, after all these years, I'm still trying to work out the dilemma from um, Restaurant at the End of the Universe where the cow that wants to be eaten. Good evening, madame and gentlemen. I am the main dish of the day. May I interest you in parts of my body? Huh? Something off my shoulder, perhaps, braised in a little white wine sauce. Your shoulder? Well, naturally mine, sir. Nobody else's is mine to offer. <coughs> the uh, rump is very good, sir. I have been e exercising and eating plenty of grain, so there's a, a lot of good meat there. <coughs> or a, a casserole of me, perhaps. You mean this animal actually wants us to eat it? I think it's horrible. It's the most revolting thing I've ever heard. Hey, what's the problem, Earthman? I don't want to eat an animal that's lying there inviting me to. I think it's heartless. It's better than eating an animal that doesn't want to be eaten. That's not the point. Well, maybe it is the point. I don't care. I don't want to talk about it. I'll, ha I'll have a green salad. May I urge you, sir, to consider my liver? It must be very rich and tender by now. I have been force-feeding myself for months. Green salad, please. A green salad. Is there any reason why I shouldn't have a green salad? I know many vegetables that are very clear on that point, sir, which is why it was decided to cut through the whole tangled problem by breeding an animal that actually wanted to be eaten and was capable of saying so clearly and distinctly. <clears throat> and here I am. 
glass of water? Hey, listen, we want to eat. You know, we don't want to make a meal of the issues. We'll have four rest steaks in a hurry, please. Very wise choice, sir. Very good. I'll just nip off and shoot myself. Oh, uh, God. Don't worry, sir. I'll be very humane. What's eating you, Earthman? This reminds me of the German case of the actual cannibal guy who put an ad out saying he'd like to kill and eat somebody. And a person responded to that ad uh, saying that they would like to be killed and eaten. Yeah, I thought it was the other uh, way around. Someone put in an ad saying they wanted to be killed, uh, eaten, slowly little, eaten to death. And someone else No, it wasn't whatever. eaten to death, but just killed the and eaten. put the ad out first? Either way it went, they met okay. up. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, according to the report I read, they met up. The person kind of chickened out, so the cannibal said, okay, I'll drive you home and took them back, and apparently they sat in the car for a long time talking, and instead of getting out of the car and going home, the person drove back with them to the home uh, where they did, and then they decided they chose to eat the penis um, of this person, and they, they talked about the potty parts, and they chose that one, and then they castrated the guy while he was still alert and awake, uh, and they cooked up the penis, and the guy tasted it himself, a little bit of it, and then the cannibal ate it, and then the guy bled to death. Obviously, if you get castrated, you bleed to death um, without a medical attention, and then after he was dead, he did his butchering or whatever. And, but, so they tried to get him for murder, uh, and he was acquitted by the German court, but then there was a big reaction in society, and so they retried it, I think, or they overturned the initial verdict. Wow. I forget what it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, technically, it's the same kind of case. I mean, if so it's... So Richard, let me ask you this. Uh, it's not going to be about eating penises. Um, what if instead of enhancing, enhancing people to be more intelligent, like we find some drug or something that makes them more intelligent, what if we found some, like, genetic therapy or, or drug or whatever that makes people more happy being stupid? So this kind of like the, the cow. So restaurant. Well, or just something, you know, like you might you might go into the cow situation thinking like being eaten is bad, right? Yeah. It's a main motivation for being a vegetarian is that you think like you you wouldn't want to be eaten, and uh, so therefore it's wrong to eat a to kill and eat a pig because a pig is pretty similar to to human being. Like you said, that you know that there's similar in lots and lots of ways to four year olds, and and I think a lot of people wouldn't condone. Killing and eating four-year-olds. Exactly. Frankie, Frankie agrees with me. Frankie least, does agree. Exactly. Was Frankie agreeing with me. <laughs> um, you know what? I so this is. I would say that's bad. I'd say that's terrible. To instead of uplifting people, downgrading them, but making yeah. them happy about it. Yeah. No. Uh, better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. That's. I'm on board 1,000% with the intellectual pleasures being superior to the other pleasures. Um, I share so, your intuition. I wonder what, what defense can be made for it, though. I think some good defenses. But first of all, so this gets us back to something that Laura was saying earlier in the conversation about the relation of consciousness to these higher, higher cognitive capacities. Um, so I guess before I spill off on this, Laura, did you want to add anything at this point? There's so many things I could add, but... Um, <laughs> add them all. <laughs> um, well, if we back up a long ways to the question of what the concept is, yeah. um, that uh, Vygotsky argued it starts off with basic associations. 
um, and then develops to sort of a complex, um, which involves a substage where it's a pseudo-concept. Um, Looks like a concept, feels like a concept. It's not until you really tease it apart that you realize, you know, there's a problem. And the, the only examples I can come up with for that for my students is a... Uh, like a hairless dog simply can't be a dog kind of a thing. Not a great example, but... Right, or like an eight-legged dog. Like <laughs> yeah. It can't be a dog or something. Um, so, so, so what is that process then? What is it, what's, you start out as an association. That's not a concept, though. No, it's not a concept. Um, because he was, he was arguing against the reflexologists, you know, with the behaviorists here, the reflexologists there, Right. He basically said that what separates the stimulus and the response is this thing, whatever it is, that mediates the relationship. So it could be a word, it could be a tool. I mean, a word becomes a tool in that sense to mediate that relationship. Um, but early on, we kind of only have the association um, because... We're just learning language, you know. So what's the association between? Um, between the person or some mental state of the person? or Let's say that object and that word that we get for it. Okay, and, so, that, so no concepts for, for Frankie, for the dogs? Uh, not, even associate, not even associations for them? There's, there's an association between the word. So dog or Frankie. Or the dog. Oh, for Frankie there was one. There's an association between dog and that particular dog. It For goes Frankie. on from there to sort of a chain of associations because it's a recognition that, oh, dog not only refers to Frankie, but refers to that and that and that. Other. No, I mean, I'm, I mean, does Frankie have the co any concepts? The dog? Does she have oh, concepts? Does the dog have any concepts? Well, a dog can get basic associations, but Vygotsky... I mean, he did talk a bit about the work with apes because apes have basic tools, but also showed, argued that the major. I mean, we know a lot more about apes than we did then, but yeah. Um, but, but, sorry, Laura, but the reason I'm asking is because if you if you say that the association between a word and something else, and then animals don't have the words, I assume, right? So then, what's the What's the association going to be between? What does the dog have that it, that there can be this association between if it's not a word? Well, they can create a lot of associations, including with the commands that people teach them, the words that people teach them. He was trying to sort of argue against the limitations of Pavlov's work for understanding humans. Right. Uh, yeah, dogs are stuck sort of at that level with lights and bells and such, but that humans can actually use the words to change our reaction to the stimulus. Right. So uh, you guys know about uh, Tolman? Tolman was an early, uh, I guess, critic. He's, a, 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 he's kind of a behaviorist, but also a, he gets ta touted by a lot of cognitive uh, cognitivists as a, as a early critic of behaviorism. Anyway, there's this really cool experiment involving rats in mazes that Tolman did to illustrate the supposed weakness of a pure associationist kind of learning. 
you present a rat with some kind of like relatively simple maze. It's like a T maze. You would like run forward and you either can turn to the left or you can turn to the right. Depending which way you turn, you're going to wind up with the cheese. You let the, the rat run this maze and figure out where the cheese is. Then you put it in a slightly different maze. And this maze has, at one point, there's this branching point. that's kind of like radial, multiple branches in multiple directions. And if you think that what the rat is doing is just a kind of like a simple association, that it had a particular behavior, which is to run straight ahead and then turn right, and then it associates that with the reward of getting the cheese, then when presented with this radial maze, that it will pick like the center one and just run straight forward and then, then turn right. But if you think the rat is actually doing something else, something maybe more complicated than association, like for example that it has some generalized or abstract concept of space, that it has like an allocentric or objective uh, representation of the location in space, and an ability to like compute in its head the, what, the, what the shortest path would be, then it's going to pick a, uh, w one of the other paths in the, in the you know, radial branching point. And then I guess the experimental demonstration showed that that's what the rats do. They actually take the shortcut. Even though they never ran the shortcut before, they ran the long way, they don't simply associate the, uh, having run the long way with the, what they were, with the reward. They uh, instead have some other kind of representation that you might even call it a concept of space that allows them to do this this thing. So I guess you know part of what I hear Laura Laura saying about association versus concepts. If you had a dog that was able to recognize something and it was able to recognize it in a, a vast variety of novel contexts, as opposed to you know it, you train it to bark three times when you show it this particular toy, but it can only do it if if it's against the background of the the red carpet. You change the color of the carpet or, you know, you change the background to something else, then it just has no idea what to do. In the one case, you've got, it looks like this representation or, or memory structure that's highly flexible. It is able to be deployed in a wide variety of contexts. In the other case, you just have this very simple association. There, it's able to as associate one particular stimulus with one particular behavior, and then that's it. Laura, does, does that sound like the... The kind of thing? To some extent. You add to the problem of what exactly... The big thing is that children don't differentiate exactly what it is they're associating it with. So is it, you know, like milk? Is it the bottle it's in? Is it, you know, is it the cup or is it the milk? They don't, necess they don't know what the word milk refers to necessarily. That comes through additional learning. But that's still often association, that you're refining more carefully what the associations go with. But when you get to the complex stage, there's something that's like a little bit abstract. So maybe here's where we're getting to spatial maps or... Uh, it's hard to bridge from one clear theory to another, but it becomes clear at the stage when it becomes a concept that it's a very generalized, abstract term that's flexible. Yeah. Um, so we... we can deal with some of the complications about, you know, our definition of species doesn't really work so well because birds from different species can sometimes have babies together. Right. Um, right. So, so, but again, you keep, so you keep associating. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jokes. Pun, pun sadly <laughs> intended there, but you keep associating the word concept with a general term. It sounds like to me. Yes. But, but I want to make the case that Frankie has concepts. I mean, that my dog has concepts, and that's 
Um, and so I, I understand that there is one kind of concept, which is the kind that you're talking about. Um, uh, you know, someone like me, I guess, in my more, if my darker moments, I might say that what a, what that abstract concept is just is a kind of you know experience of a particular thing, but thought of as a exemplar. Um, so that would be the the deep, the dark side of empiricism that abstract concepts are just. Um, individual experiences, but uh, but then you might think, no, there's this thing that's actually the abstract concept. But does Frankie have that? I don't know. I don't think she does. I agree with you. But that, does that mean she has no concepts? Um, so you're right that so there's an association, let's say, between uh, between um, me putting on my shoes and the dog thinking walk. Uh, and you know I can be getting dressed in other ways, and the dog doesn't seem to care. But it's like right when I go for my shoes, because we don't wear shoes in the house, and uh, anyway, so right when I go for the shoes, though, Frankie, bam. So that's an association, obviously, um, that she has developed between the shoe getting behavior and then going outside behavior, maybe. But why doesn't that indicate that she has some kind of concept of it's walk time or walk now? Or and you're right that you it, it's going to be confused in some sense. Um, because she'll be, get it confused with other kinds of things, like when I'm just going to clean my shoes or something like that, um, as opposed to going to put them on. So it's not very clearly differentiated, but it allows Frankie to keep track of this thing called, you know, going outside. Why? Why isn't? Why isn't that a perfectly good but limited notion of what a, a concept is, and that she has it? I mean, maybe you do agree. Cause I actually don't know if you would agree. Because it it is not a true concept because it can't be turned around and used as a tool to understand something totally new. Conscious of something, you need. I hate to use the word representation because then we get into. I knew you were going to say representation. Oh, let's do it. Let's <laughs> yeah. do <some> representation. <laughs> so I wonder how much of the following you would agree with. There's a certain kind of flexible representations that that are um, deployable in a wide variety of contexts that would suffice for a concept. Um, but without can have that. Yeah, Frankie can have that. I don't mind calling that a concept. And just one one other thing I want to throw in here. There's two main ways we use the word concept. Distinction between having a concept of something and having the concept of something. We might talk about a little kid and wonder if they have the concept of an animal. They you know, they might they might get the right answer on a few sorts of questions like is a giraffe an animal? Is uh, a zebra an animal? But there's a lot of stuff about animals that 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 they don't know yet, and 
we might be reluctant to say that they have fully acquired the concept of an animal. But we might say, like, well, you know, uh, she has a concept of an animal, and, and Billy and Janie might have two different concepts of an animal. She has a concept of an animal. He's got a different one. But neither of them have the concept of an animal. What is the concept of an animal? This immerses us in, like, a hundred different controversies, right? No, so I disagree with to, everything you're saying. There has to do, you know, some people say, like, if, if as long as you're embedded in a community and there's experts you can defer to, uh, even though you don't know shit about animals, you just say the word animal and that's good enough because there's someone else around that does know well, yeah. about animals. I <laughs> ask my students if uh, whales are fish. They say, no, they're mammals. I say, why are they mammals? And no one can answer. <laughs> They say, I don't know, someone told me they're mammals. Yeah. Uh, giving birth to live young and breathing uh, air. Okay, so. That's why we would call it a complex because there's no understanding. I realize one of the key things that makes it a concept is it's connected into a system of knowledge. So to understand the concept of a whale, you kind of got to know that it breathes air. Yeah. Yeah. But to be able to think about whales, though, you merely have to point at one and say that thing. Yeah. So, can a sunflower think about the sun? Uh, no, of course not. I mean, well, no, I shouldn't say of course not, but they don't have um, uh, sophisticated enough machinery which is doing something general. I mean, look, you, I, like, I like representations too. I, you know, I, I'm actually surprised that Laura said representations because I thought she was more of a like. In Just, I'm stuck <laughs> in the common language. I can't get out of it. Vygotsky wrote in Russian, and I don't know Russian. Why you no know, like representations? Um, it's a Connecticut thing. <laughs> because it's a slippery slope then into information processing. Yeah, which and is great. I'm trying to keep this distinct. Well, um, because the language of information processing is so, uh, has so taken over the language, the folk language, that it's hard to get away from that metaphor of the computer when we're talking about psychology. What do you think is bad or misleading or unproductive about that metaphor? Um, Keep in mind you're speaking to a computer. Yeah, I am a, I am a, a <laughs> Peapot 2000. <laughs> there are a few problems with it. Um, one is uh, it fails to recognize how humans are fundamentally social. Um, I wonder why you think that, though. Why do I, mean, I think that? Um, well, I mean, there are certainly. Some I mean, because look, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't want to derail your train of thought, but I just like you know, the internet seems kind of social, but that's all computation. So I mean, yeah, you're there, like in my inside my laptop here, there's a bunch of solitary stuff, but that's one part of like computational theory, and then there's also this other stuff, which is how these things hook up to each other, information flow, systems theory, um, routing, transfer. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other stuff about networks of these things, which obviously is what the brain would be doing um, and what we would be doing when we're, like, interacting with other people. So uh, I agree that, you know, it tends to focus on what's happening in the head, um, but that doesn't I, – I don't think that necessarily means that it neglects the social, right? Or does it, do you think? Well, clearly – Computers are passive receivers of knowledge. Um, they can't actively go pursue the interactions they want. 
Sure, they, I mean, not yet, but we're, look at iCub, for instance. Um, iCub is being taught to, to re interact with the environment, to learn from it. So, you know, these are stages of, of, of computing that we're going through. The technology might get there. Um, but the... But so you just don't want people going around saying we're like an old, you know, um, uh, you know, Apple IIe or something. That, that's what you don't want is this old, outdated floppy disks and, you know, um, green screens and that kind of stuff. I mean, because... Part of it, but there's also, I mean, of course, we could build in the programming so that it has the same human needs and emotional and motivational responses. Exactly. Um, so that's why I'm saying it, it could, it, I, I see it as very possible in the next hundred or so years getting to that, but one of my problems is when we think of the computer we think of it in relatively isolated terms and so using that as a metaphor leads us to be able to say when an individual is having problems functioning that that individual has a disability rather than the problem being between that individual and the environment it's in. So, uh, you, but you might be friendly to someone who said, um, let's do situated robotics or let's study uh, swarm, swarm systems. You have a, a whole bunch of, a, a whole bunch of uh, autonomous agents and um, the ultimate, the ultimate solution, whatever problem you throw at them, is something that emerges from their interactions. It's not, it's not, it's not something that arises just out of the programming out of a, of a solitary um, robot. Distributed cognition is shares a lot of basic ideas with. Um, what did, wait, what did you just say? Distributed. Distributed cognition. Oh, distributed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It shares a lot of the properties um, because there's a lot about human behavior that's simply emergent. It's not, um, you know. Can we define some terms here so that I don't lose track right. of what we're talking about? What What is uh, emergent and what is distributed cognition in your well, use? Um, Does emergent mean like specifically can't be explained in terms of functioning of lower level properties? Because if so, then I'm not sure I'm on board with emergent. Yes. That we can't talk about causation in the way it's traditionally talked about if we're talking about an emergent phenomenon. It happens, I mean, it's, it's often talked about in the same breath when they try to apply dynamic systems to human behavior. Um, just sometimes a new qualitative state emerges by surprise because uh, all these different things kind of coincided. Right. But by, by surprise, does that mean in principle not explainable in terms of more fundamental stuff? Or as it so happens, we didn't have the fundamental thing which would have explained that not, and rendered it non-surprising? That's the thing. That's the real – that's my worry. It it can't be defined in com in reductive terms. There needs to be something that's understood about 
the coming together. Okay. Um, and I don't know what kind of a definition that's going to be. Could I, could I try something here? Because this is something that I was really interested in in, in grad school. And yeah. uh, so um, one way of thinking about emergence is in a, a kind of, it's not the strongest way that some people will champion, um, but it's something that you could, you could illustrate with this really cool example. And I think this comes from a book by Mitchell Resnick. This uh, book came out. Uh, called Turtles, Termites, and Traffic Jams, and this is something that a lot of people in um, like uh, distributed cognition and situated robotics and, and artificial life are interested in. But anyways, in this example that's supposed to illustrate this kind of emergence that's not, it's not full-blown crazy emergence, but you've got a bunch of these, you've got a bunch of these little robot uh, termites, or this might happen in a computer simulation. The, the termites are these very simplified versions of termites. And um, the, termite, the termites can, can move around in this uh, arena, and uh, they are basically kind of wandering uh, freely. And present in the arena in the arena is like just this random uh, scattering of wood chips. And each termite there's like maybe like you throw a hundred termites in there. Each termite has a very very simple program that it's following. Um, in addition to just like wandering around randomly. It follows a program that says, if you um, don't have a wood chip in your mouth, and uh, and you run into a wood chip, pick it up. If you do have a wood chip in your mouth and you run into a wood chip, uh, drop your wood chip and then you know move away a certain number of clicks and then go back to your random wanderings. Now over. Uh, over a period of, of time, what happens is that this random distribution of wood chips coalesce into a small number of piles. There'll be like like two or three piles, and they're pretty much stable after that. Like the piles don't end up getting rescattered or split into piles. And um, a lot of people want to describe this as a kind of emergence because the the termites weren't programmed to make piles. Right. They, they weren't given pile detectors. It, uh, you know, whereby it would go, you know, go go find wood chips and and arrange them into this pattern until it matches this template or something like that. So it was, uh, it wasn't programmed in that there would be piles. Now, of course, uh, you know, Laplace's demon, looking at all the particles that the wood chips and the robots, the robot termites are made out of, Laplace's demon would could predict just by applying the laws of physics to the particles that you would get these piles. So it's not emergent in the really strong sense of like it's utterly unknowable where the piles come from, but there I think there is a, a useful way of thinking about emergence, whereby it's this sort of thing like the yeah. piles they emerged they weren't they weren't made to spec, there wasn't right. a blueprint for piles. Yeah. Uh, Imported into the into I, the termites. I go with that, but you need to somehow step back and recognize patterns. Um, and just looking at what the termites do isn't enough. So that's how I. So, Laura, is this would this be a fair thing to to say about your um, reticence about the word representation? That a lot of people that that are inclined to talk about representations or information processing um, in understanding human intelligent behavior are building a, a lot into the individual human in a way that would be analogous to saying, oh, the termite must have had a representation of piles. And that uh, perhaps there's a different kind of strategy 
um, where um, the individuals don't don't represent the, the domain that is being intelligently dealt with. And you know, and maybe the, you could also make Richard happy and say like, <laughs> there might be some representations nonetheless, and this might be computational nonetheless, but it, it, it's not what the individualist, like the old school computationalist, would have anticipated. The, rep, the individual representations might be very different um, from what a solitary genius would have if the solitary genius figured it out all by himself or herself. Would, I'm trying to bring everybody together here. What do you all think of that? That is a part of the problem. Um, but I think the my other reticence to using the word representation is it gives us the idea that there's something static, um, such as the programming and these um, uh, robotic termites, when in fact there's constant change in our representations. Um, but can I just jump in here because, you know, I, I don't, the only way I know how to understand this type of stuff is through, through mathematics. So if you look at differential equations, differential equations model a system continuously over time. Um, so, you know, you take a simple differential equation of a, of, a, of a ball moving down a hill or something like that. You do your derivative, dx over dt, um, and you're modeling how the thing is, how the ball is, uh, its position is changing dynamically in time relative um, to, to, excuse me, dynamically relative to time. Uh, so now, all right, now I ask myself then, so now what you're talking about. Um, you have the equation, that seems to me kind of static. The equation is a static thing. Uh, you have, but the, the values of the equation are continuous. They're, mo they're changing, you know, and if you're running this thing in a real, a real world, um, the values of those that the equation is, is dealing with are continuously changing. But at the same time, you still have something there that's static. That, that's the, the, the equation, so to speak. Um, so I guess I just don't see the, the so is, is the, I would say, well, is like the equation like a representation maybe of, of the, how the system is working or, and then you, how you crunch the thing and you get this continuous change. But, so I don't see the conflict. I mean, that's a simple analogy, but I mean, the same is true of the brain. Right? I mean, you know, the, the, there are different equations which we can model the way neurons work. So I think the same point will, will kind of transfer. But my basic point is I don't see a, a, a real kind of tension between the two claims. One, that there's a, a representation which is kind of static, um, and that the other, that there's this continuous dynamical changing thing. Because I think like a, a differential equation gives you a kind of model which has both at the same time. Hmm. Good question. <laughs> um. But but I agree. I mean, because you, I do see. I mean, as someone who, uh, like I said, I wasn't joking when I said that this is a Connecticut influence thing. Because you know Gibson and those people are are from Connecticut, and I went to UConn, and Milliken is in that camp to some extent. She's a Gibsonian, and uh, you know I studied neuroscience with a person who. I mean, we were studying memory. Uh, and this guy said, "There's no representations in the brain," and and you know he was pretty hardcore. I was like, "What do you mean there's no representations in the brain?" He's like, "All there is is synchrony." I mean, as a matter of fact, that's kind of what partially inspired me to write my paper on uh, called "What Is a Brain State," where I talk about synchrony and 
that's actually a way of implementing representations was the argument that I was making. Um, so that you can, uh, I was kind of making, making the same point. Yes, you have something that's dynamically changing over time, um, but at the same time, that's the representation. <laughs> I mean, it's building a model of the external world. It's just a dynamic model, but it's still a model. Um, so then there still is something static there, the, the, the thing which generates the way the model evolves through time. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to challenge your view or anything here. I'm just trying to explore these things. And this is something that's always been in the back of my mind is why is everyone talking like there's this dichotomy between representations and dynamical systems when it seems like maybe it's a level thing at best, um, which might be going on, like what level of description you happen to be choosing to talk about maybe. Uh, but, 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 so I don't know. So, but, but I just to like argue against myself really quickly, some people will say, uh, well, Richard, you're conflating the difference between a system which unfolds in time according to a certain abstract rule and the system itself sort of instantiating that rule and then unfolding according to it on purpose. Like, you know, yeah. here's the rule by which I unfold and you're kind of going, making sure that you're, you're mapping to the differential equation. Yeah. So like the planets are orbiting the sun in accordance with a certain laws that you could describe in terms of equations, but do you right. want to say they're computing their orbits? I mean, I would. I, a, I love pan-computationalism. See the first three episodes of this. Wait, do you, but <laughs> representations? Are you a pan-representationalist? Um, Richard? I'm not really a pan-computationalist either. I just think that you, it, it makes sense. That, I mean, I don't know. When you drop a ball, does it compute the function? I think it's, you can make sense of that idea that it's computing the, the yeah, it's um, representing inverse it, yeah. square law. Um, it might be representing. It depends on what you mean by representation here. Um, uh, if you mean something like a picture, then no, it's not representing it. Um, but it, it really depends on what you mean by representation. So I'm someone who's going to tie representation to function, um, probably to a large extent, and evolutionary function in particular, so that I'm going to say probably this thing doesn't have that function, but because it hasn't evolved in order to provide that information to some other system, which is what I think a representation does. Uh, I think that what a representation does is it has a purpose within a certain system of standing for information which is valuable or useful to the system. And that unless that's happening, you don't really have a representation. That's what I would say. That sounds more reasonable than this <laughs> representationalism you're flirting with there. I'm <laughs> say that the ball perhaps creates a presentation but not a representation right not a rep that's right because to represent you have to present it to something right exactly I think that's exactly the right way of thinking about this it has to be presented to the system for its use represented um, represented that's right uh, um, so so I mean the, uh, what this long-winded thing I'm talking about in Connecticut is that these there are certain people there who think that what you have is no, nothing like an internal model of the world being built up. Um, and there are various ways of, of saying this. I like Alva Noe's way of saying it the best. Um, uh, Alva puts it this way. He says, look, why would you have to build a model of the world? The world is its own best model. So why would we be as organ and, – and I'm not endorsing this view. I'm merely yeah. saying that I, I think it's interesting because it flies in the face of like everything that I – have been taught about how, how the brain works. <laughs> but anyway, um, some people say, why would the brain or us in particular be involved in really making this sort of elaborate, intricate model of the external world um, 
when the world is already out there. I mean, this is in a way you could put this as you know Gibson's. What did he say? It was the invariant ambient. Does anyone know Gibson? Yeah, yeah the ambient array. Yeah, the invariant ambient array. Exactly. Yeah. That's just this sort of information that's already out there, and you don't need to encode it because it's there to be exploited, to be discovered. I, there, there are sober versions of this that are cool, but some of the sloganeering gets a little too raucous for my taste. <laughs> so like the Alvin Noe stuff, I'm like, eh, you don't really believe what you're saying. Come on. Well, why not, though? Some, I mean, what's part of so what there's a really cool example that that uh, some of these uh, anti-representationalists trot out. Oh, is I this think the it's called the paralyzed person. No, it's the thing about row and catching a baseball. There's a, um, a, a there's a what is the there's a Greek letter, row R H O. Yes. And in this context, it's used to, I believe it stands for a certain amount of uh, visual of the visual field that is um, occluded by an object that's moving toward you. And uh, so here's a really impressive thing that that humans can do, and they can they can catch a baseball. <laughs> it's not that impressive, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I used to be a little league baseball, and I was really bad at it. So I'm impressed <laughs> okay. by the people that don't just get hit on the head. <laughs> okay. Uh, so um, now one now one way you might try to like uh, model what's going on here, or or similarly, uh, you might try to build a robot that can catch a baseball, is you put in all the you know like Old school laws of mechanics, where whereby ultimately you're you're computing a, a a parabolic trajectory as this thing moves in the gravitational field. Um, but the anti-representationalists say, look, there's a much simpler way of understanding what's what's happening here when people um, catch a, a baseball, and that is that all you have to do is just keep move your body in such a way that the baseball occludes just this certain portion of your visual field. And um, and that will keep you on target. You don't have to be representing um, the trajectory of the ball in the sense of representing a um, a, a paraboloid. So there's a there's a lot uh, that is going on in the world that you don't have to represent. Now you might still say that there's something computational or there's something representational going on, and that's personally what I would say. But it, but um, I do think that that the anti-representationalists have a certain amount of point. A certain interesting point with these uh, certain kinds of examples that um, you can get a much more clean and economical and realistic explanation of what's really going on by adopting this the simple thing, the simpler strategy. It's like with the termites. The termites don't represent the piles; they just have the simple rule of like pick up a chip if you bump into another one, uh, or otherwise you know drop it. Right. And, and in the case of the baseball, the simple rule is like just keep the the visual the Maxim, minimize the visual angle of your of the occluded. I don't know exactly what the, how the row explanation goes. No, that's right though. Basically, so yeah. you exploit. Some, I mean, uh, exploit some feature of the environment rather than build a complex model. Of but when when you say model. the like, but when you say the Alvin no, the, the Alvin Noe slogan about like the world is enough, the world can be its own best. The world is its own best model, yeah. Well, then, you know, then a potato is as smart as I am because we're both in the... <laughs> we're no, both that's in the not world. true. Can I, I mean, can I just defend poor, these poor guys? That's, that potato is much smarter than you, by the way, please. <laughs> I agree with you, Richard, on this. I do think the world is its own best model, and in that sense, maybe this is what embodied knowledge is at some level. It's not something we have representations of. 
We just know that it feels like this is what our body does. Well, what's the difference between me and the potato? Aren't don't we, aren't we both in the world? <laughs> well, uh, potato doesn't do very much. <laughs> no, so Why can not? I try? I mean, the world yeah. is there. The yeah. world is there being an awesome representation <laughs> of the world. Why couldn't the, the potato uh, go can and I, make can my I, pictures for me? Can I? Okay, so, you know, come on. Yeah. Can I? Is this a be serious moment? So, uh, be serious. Um, look, here's an analogy from computer science. So, in order to have, if you have data, data doesn't do anything unless you access it. Uh, you have the data encoded in a certain format. Um, it just sits there eternally waiting for someone to give a shit about it. If, and so, the potato is such that it can't access the data that the world has. I mean, so that's that. That's easy. Um, now, what? Now, why not? Well, the right. answer is because of the brain. <laughs> Hello. The br now, so according to these guys, and I'm not one of them. I just like to be, you know, charitable to people and um, try to understand. You know, as a side, I think it's very easy to like tear down any view, including ones I like. I think it's a lot harder to sort of try to figure out why someone who's not an idiot would believe that thing. And that, and, you know, I, so I don't think I was an idiot. Um, it seems all so. Some smart people say this, so you know, I don't agree with it, but I think got to be something in here that's not stupid. <laughs> so, so, um, and maybe the slogans don't get at the thing, maybe, but I think they do actually. So the difference is, according to these people, what the brain allows you to do is it's like a memory bus. Um, what a memory bus does, it's a read, a scanner or a reader and a writer. It allows you to go to the data that's encoded and access it and to manipulate it. So you need something, whatever, on any kind of theory here, you need something which goes to the thing, interacts with it, accesses it, and manipulates it. That's read-write memory. Um, so, okay, what if the world's like that? And what if the brain is that is in a big elaborate memory bus? In other words, it provides us the ability to access or interface the data, which is somehow but, but in the environment. Has zero representations, and it performs zero computations over those representations. The only oh. representations are the world itself. Um, well, I, I wonder if you're, yeah, computations, reputation. So, you, you know, if a computation is defined as manipulating a representation, um, and if you define representation in the broad enough way, then the representation of the table is just the table. Then manipulating the table is computation. And so, yeah, you can, re if you're really married to those terms, you can well, redefine them in a way that there is computation and manipulation of representations here. But, but it would be nice to see an actual explanation where, you know, so for example, the row thing. The thing with the baseball, um, there, there, in that in that example, there's not zero representations internal to the system. There's just fewer representations than an old school uh, AI person would have hypothesized. But ultimately, it's it seems like there's there's some there's some amount of representation going on. Um, but what well, I would what again, I would like to see what you mean by representation. So I think that uh, some people have a very stringent notion of representation, um, and they might even mean it to be something like intentional or conceptual, um, and they might even mean it to be things like what Laura was talking about earlier, where it needs to be used on repeatable occasions to do the same thing or different things and redeployed and blah blah blah. Um, so some people don't have those um, kind of uh, restrictions on what they mean by representation. So I don't know. That's a nebulous area. Are there representations? I think the real question um, isn't are there representations, but are there internal models? Um, is is the system involved in building up an internal model of the thing that's out there? 
and doing something to the model, or is it somehow just using the stuff that's out there as a model and interacting What's, what's with the it? difference between a model and, and just any old set of representations? Well, models might can be analog, maybe, or I, I don't know. They might they may be more relaxed um, than uh, representations. They maybe not intentional. I don't know. So is a homomorph is homomorphism. I mean, this is technical. Laura can tune out for a second, but is homomorphism theory representational? Maybe it depends on who you talk to. Okay. I don't know, but it's clearly something that there's a space there that's modeling something else, or you know, you could say represent. I would say representation, but other people will fight you. So to avoid that fight, we could use a different word. I think the key thing for Vygotsky and for me is that the representation has an in-the-world aspect in that a word, even if it's just said, there's still a, a material and energy goes into making that, that word. And it's in the world. Um, and it's between people. So even if you're that scientist off working on something by yourself, you're still using those hundreds of texts that were written by somebody else and using a socially shared um, system, which you might add to, but you're using some sort of socially shared system of, of, of codes, of symbols, signs, representations, um, but that it is always social. And so, so you would say you're thinking the thought process is social? I mean that the thoughts are somehow out of the, of, of the body in the books and in the history? Uh, that conscious thought at least is, I wouldn't say out of the body, but that it, it's, um, but that they are social and material because of the um, because of using these signs that are both social and material. If you wanted to find, if you wanted to make something else that had the same thought, like a person or a robot, let's say, how much of this would you have to build into it for it to be able to do that? Like all of it, or part part of it? I mean. Could you duplicate this in a in a solitary environment, even if the thing was drastically wrong? Or do you need, in order to have the thinking at all, does it have to? I mean, so I'm trying to get at what, in a technical sense, it, it, here's Pete's favorite word, vehicle. <laughs> Remember Pete when you used to talk about vehicles all the time? Um, and so and one of the, your your dissertation advisor tried to uh, rip me a, a new one about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I do accept. <laughs> yeah, I do. He said, "So what are their little cars in your head?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, so the a vehicle is like what we might say the mental object, which um, is is the representation, as uh, a distinguished from the content of the representation. That's the technical, I guess, distinction. Um, so one question is, where's the vehicle? Is it simply in the head, or can it extend past the head into the environment? Do you have a, a position on that? It totally extends past the head into the environment. The representation, if there, such that there is a representation, is yes, that we are not. And this is the biggest problem I have with the computer model: is that we are not. In here, we are all of this, and there aren't bound, there aren't sharp boundaries, only fuzzy boundaries when it comes to thinking. Um, 
but it seems like you know, I mean I'm sympathetic to a lot of this so you know if you think about um, if you think about a lot of the stuff that humans are able to do it includes things like build jet airplanes and the the jet airplane is obviously the product of intelligent behavior and there's no single individual that suffices for jet airplanes there's just no one there's no Tony Stark who you leave him in the desert with a, a welder and he can make like a yeah. flying power suit that's just not it doesn't, it doesn't you need uh, you couldn't fit all the all the expertise and all the all the knowledge into a single human you need teams and teams of people and also they are offloading a lot of the cognitive load onto external props like like books and computer yeah. databases etc so there's a lot of, lots and lots of intelligent uh, things that are done intelligently that I think are properly analogized or analogized to this airplane case. I do, however, think that there's something portable uh, uh, about human intelligence that, you know, Tom uh, Tom Hanks in, uh, what was that, Stowaway, Castaway? Yeah, Castaway. That's the movie with uh, with Wilson? Yeah. The, his, uh, right, so okay, he's alone. And, um, but he's not. He has Wilson. You just said <laughs> Wilson. You know, Wilson deserved the Oscar and was robbed. <laughs> it was very convincing. Wilson is actually a basketball. I don't think people realize that <laughs> Wilson was playing a volleyball. Had to lose uh, a lot of weight. The Wilson had to lose weight to fit the role of volleyball. It was a dramatic uh, <laughs> prior to that role. Uh, anyway. Um, Right, so real life Tom Hanks. Hold on, though. I I was only partially joking because I think someone like Laura is going to say that even on that island, you're not alone. You have, you have your voices, your memories, your and and that's what he does in the movie is he creates his other stuff to interact with. Wait a minute, now it's not magic. It's not like uh, languages uh, is a uh, the force from Star Wars. He he is able to (laughs) encode. He's, you know, he he didn't invent this on his own. It's not like he was he was born. Um, in space and had zero contact. Of course, he had lots of social contact, um, but this this made a mark, and in, in the mark is inside of him. And whether you call it a representation or whatever you want to call it, there's a change in his brain that is portable. And um, there's a lot of intelligent things that he's he's able to do in isolation. On he might not be able to build a jet airplane on that desert island, but he he was able to like make a spear and catch some fish. And uh, so, so some, some again, maybe I'm just like complaining about slogans, and the actual theories are more nuanced than the than the slogans. Um, but I do, I, but I do think that there's a that there is a, a portability, a detachability about human intelligence that uh, some of a some of it is we can take it away from the tribe and we can operate intelligently in isolation, at least for a while. Maybe we'll go nuts. Because we, are, we do want to be around people. <laughs> you Pardon? wouldn't do that. There's lots of research to, to supporting that. But um, the idea of... The basic idea is that you you might be in physical isolation. This is why I hate the word game. But you're never really alone, as, as Richard said, because you've got the 
the memories of previous interactions. You've got the language, which is not something you invented. Somebody else invented it. You're just using it. Yeah. So all of this is social, um, even if you are physically alone. Um, and in fact, we don't have monologues. We have dialogues, which is why we need a Wilson um, because when you dialogue by yourself for too long, you go a little crazy. Um, it, we need that reflection somehow. So I, I mean, I've been turning more and more to dialectics to deal with a lot of these kinds of issues. The individual and social, they're mutually dependent. They're unity. They just reflect different aspects of that unity. Um, yeah. In the same way that if we back up to a way earlier conversation, structure and agency are a part of a unity also. So you have to give students that, and get back to the pedagogy, they need that structure, but then they need, if they're going to master it, they have to find their agency within that structure. Absolutely. You know, one thing I wrestle with about the, this connection to, to pedagogy is uh, the value or lack thereof of group work. Oh, LaGuardia is in love with group work. You know, when I came there, I was anti-group work. I used to, when I was a student, teachers would tell me to do group work, and I would say, I'm in a group. It's a group of one. Leave me alone. <laughs> I hated group work, too, and I'm really sympathetic to the students who similar, similarly dislike uh, group work. But they need it, though. They need it. <laughs> I, now I'm on the other side. Uh, I'm very because... torn about it. I, you know, I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I, sorry, I go have, ahead, Larry. I have sorry. Students, when I assign them the group work, it's that, you know, group work, when it goes well, is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And when it doesn't, you still need to learn to deal with it. Yeah. And exactly. There's a social grace in dealing with groups that aren't congenial to your personality type or whatever, or vice versa. You need to learn that. Um, but also, I would just I, to, be keeping on this point that we were talking about earlier. You're always in a group. Um, I, so even if you're by yourself, I feel like you're in a group for these kinds of reasons that we've already been saying. So I mean, so P, you talked a little bit about this, um, the collaboration. So you know, uh, you know our friend Bryce Hubner's in some of this stuff, and yeah, uh, his colleague, um, his colleague, uh, Ray, I forget. Oh, I'm oh, see, Rebecca Kukla. Yeah, thank you. Oh God, Rebecca Kukla. I, I shouldn't bring people up if I can't remember them. Um, but you know, she has a paper on this called "Radical." Uh, I think the paper's title is "Radical Collaboration" or something like that. But so her 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 idea is she's exploring these contexts where, like, there are papers written by physicists where there's like 175 authors. <laughs> you know, so no one knows who the author of the paper is. It's truly like this kind of massive joint collaborative <laughs> thing where it's yeah. like, yeah, who is the author of this paper from CERN? Yep. Nobody. It's it's got 300 authors, and that's and everyone contributes in some vital way, and you don't you can't trace out the individual contributions. So if you were to go up for tenure and say, here's my contribution, you couldn't pick it out. You have to say this is like a truly joint. Now that's one end of the spectrum. Obviously, you were making a case for the other end of the, of the spectrum, um, radical non-collaboration. And so I think one of the things that maybe Laura is pushing for, and sort of what definitely I'm trying to push for, is that there is no such thing as radical non-collaboration. Um, the idea that even if you're on a desert island and you're you're building something and you're doing it without any without any social apparatus at all, I think that's false. I think you know Laura mentioned a language that's already a social apparatus. Um, you, you don't invent language. 
uh, and no matter what Chomsky says, um, you know, it's probably not it's pr probably not the case that it's innate. But whether, sorry, sorry, Laura. And we're good pattern detectors. We're good pattern detectors. That's right. And so I feel like you're never alone. Um, hell is always other people, whether they're around or not. <laughs> it's, it's, it, there's always uh, and. So, I mean, I just don't, I, you're right, they physically might not be there, but, you know, though we were talking about whether on the desert island um, the person is doing something which could be understood uh, in terms of uh, non-social stuff. And you were saying, yes, that what this person on the island was doing was something that was just isolated, um, detached from any kind well, of social He's influence. not receiving radio waves, uh, there's not, right, from the, from the society. Whatever no, but, the, the influence he, the society has had has been encoded in its brain. It's made a change. Uh, in the, it's changed the, the intrinsic structure of his body, and it's that intrinsic structure that suffices for his um, building the spear. So there's a causal chain, and there's this link in the causal chain, which is not social, and that link led to the, to the spear. The, um, now, of course, like, where did he get his nervous system that, that resulted in the spear? He didn't make that himself. That was the result of uh, this highly socialized process. I would go much further, though, because um, when we're working out any problem, when you're having a conversation with yourself, it, it really is a dialogue. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we do that I think no other species that we've studied so far seems to be able to do is that what we've internalized from our mothers, let's, speak, let's go with Freud here, <laughs> internalized our mothers and she continues to live inside of us even if she died because she keeps talking to us to tell us not to do those things that are naughty. And it changes what we do in the moment, the new things we create because we continue to give that idea, those words, whatever it was that we committed to memory, we continue to give it life. We breathe new life into it, and that creates new thoughts. So even if we are alone, the process of creation is always uh, dialogical. That's interesting. You know, I, I know. Can I just bring this back? Because I don't know, Pete. Your your class is starting to worry me. If you're really going to yeah. talk about Kant right now, um, yeah. But, you know, you could just go tell talk about Piaget because Piaget is basically Kant anyway, right? Anyway, can, Laura, can I can I just ask you um, something really quickly? Because I want to see if like you would go as far as uh, I think that you have to go, given what you've said. So about the extension into the social dimension of thinking and thought process and so forth. So does consciousness? For, for you do that too? Because I know for you, we use the word consciousness in slightly different ways, you know? Um, like philosophers will use it to mean the experience of seeing red or feeling pain, phenomenal consciousness. Uh, whereas but, but I think what you're using is more like higher level, reflective, yes. integrative, functioning, uh, cognitive, executive function type stuff. So that sounds conceptual. That sounds interesting. 
does that extend into the environment, that kind of higher level consciousness stuff? Or are you going to reserve that for inside the brain? Oh, I think it definitely extends into the environment. I'm, I'm often fascinated that when I talk to students, whether it's my interns or a class, about the process of learning which they're currently undergoing, that a stillness comes over the room as everybody becomes so conscious of what is going on in the room at multiple levels. Um, and I, and know, that's and you think that's like the consciousness extending into the room. Yes. But you know, there's still. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm detachability guy today. So you know, <laughs> if if I asked you to think of a number between one and twenty, don't say it out loud, but just think of it silently to yourself. Um, I I, I bet you could. <laughs> ah, you're talking <laughs> with your hands. <laughs> You said it doesn't do that. You, and you can conceal from me what, what the number is that you're thinking of. That's a state of consciousness that you're enjoying. And um, what, so what is the claim about spreading out? Because I, I do get the thing, you know, like if you're going if, if to do something and there's going to be a group of people, that, that's going to have an enormous effect on you. And sometimes it's a beneficial effect. I teach a, I teach a class on meditation. It's a, a pretty new class that I've developed. Um, and it's really, really interesting and tricky trying to get people to calm down when there's a group of them. Yeah. And once you once you are able to cross the threshold, it's terrific because you've got a whole bunch of calm people, and uh, and somehow they they can calm each other down. But sometimes it's really, really, really difficult if if you lose that equilibrium and and someone's a little bit edgy or or a little bit wired or something like that, they th can throw everyone out of kilter. So there's these really interesting dynamics, but I do worry, like, well, isn't it also true that there are these solitary states of consciousness, that consciousness does have a kind of privacy, that you can, you can conceal certain aspects of your consciousness from me if you wanted to. Maybe lying is hard, and uh, if I'm sufficiently trained, I could, I could detect micro-expressions, and I could, I could figure out whether you're lying or not. But the thing with the number... You're thinking of a number between one and twenty. I'm not going to know. Only only you know about that, and that's because it's in your it's in your brain, and there aren't any wires or uh, radio waves connecting my brain to your brain. In terms of consciousness being out there, I think it's most obvious if you have like a mathematician solving a problem on a board, someone else comes up and adds something to it, and they are really sharing this. It's really what happening is the consciousness is on the board as much as it's in their heads. But what, what, why is that a better way of describing it than saying the two mathematicians have their two separate private consciousnesses which are causally interacting with each other and with the board. They're causally mediated but they have their separate, separate states of consciousness, separate vehicles of consciousness that are um, causally mediated, causally interacting. Why not describe it that way? Why instead say that there's a single conscious state that includes the two mathematicians and the things that are being written on the board. Um, I think this is better because it captures some fundamental aspects of what it is to be human that comparing us to computers doesn't. 
I mean, I guess I guess the way that a philosopher would try to isolate what's really at issue here, or someone not a philosopher, someone who is like really you know worried about isolating what's at issue here, um, they might say, well, look, suppose that you take you know a, a person like you and you map their brain and you just map all the structures in it, um, and then suppose that you just add a little bit of magic juice to that map and then a, a duplicate of you pops out, and the duplicate of you is a new a new being. Which didn't previous, I mean, it's just like jello that was compressed, and then we stamped in your brain structure into the jello, and now it's, a it's flesh. Um, so now the thing has all the structures in its brain that are isomorphic to yours. I mean, literally, molecularly, the same as yours. There, you know, more fanciful version of this called Swamp Man or whatever, where you know you have this accidental coalescence of, and you know, it turns out laws of physics allow it, and it's not as weird. It's weird, but it's not as far fetched as you might think. The, phys the physics we have says it's not impossible. So it could happen, technically speaking. So, okay, anyway, so there's you. Um, it's, it's got all the same brain structures and the same setup and, and, and all the same functioning as you do. Um, but since it didn't have the same childhood that you do, when this thing thinks about its piano lessons when it was six, it, it's having, you know, false memories because it didn't have piano lessons when it was six. So now, now in this far-fetched hypothetical scenario, what do you say about it? Do you say that the thing is thinking? Do you say the thing is not thinking? Is is the thing conscious? Is it not conscious? Does it matter to you? Like as soon as it begins interacting with the world, it's thinking. But it it's about that interaction. So so but does it so it can't think about childhood piano lessons because it's never had a piano. It's never seen a piano. That's never interacted with a piano. Drawing on in the same way it might open a book and it's still a part of what can be used in its consciousness. So suppose, you know, you're walking down the street one day, you look up into the sky, you see clouds in the sky, and the clouds, lo and behold, seem to form the following shapes, which to you signify the following sentence, Laura Beatty's a great developmental psychologist. So that sounds, that's interesting. Now, do you really think the sentence of English is up there in the sky? I mean, now suppose you say, oh, someone sky wrote it. Now suppose you find out, no, it's just a random collection of clouds. Um, which happened to be in that shape, which to you looks like an English sentence. Do you really think there's an English sentence up in the sky, I mean, in, in the clouds, if it's just produced no. accidentally, randomly? No. Okay, so why, so why is the brain that pops into existence any different than those clouds up there? Because the way our brains function is that they are constantly in interaction with the world. So even if you're sitting there doing nothing, you're, you're seeing, you're hearing, you're feeling, you're never doing nothing. And so uh, each of those things is evoking a response from the brain. And we seek out the things that interest us most. Um, and I, I won't speculate on exactly why, but it feels good to stimulate that part of the brain, whatever it is. But um, so, in a sense, the new being is childlike, but it's connected to all of this history, and it won't know the difference between what is my history and what is 
it's history that it's in the progress of making. Richard, I, I think you should stop trying to get a scientist to care about Swamp Man. To, to care about Swamp Man. <laughs> <laughs> or in this case, Swamp Woman. Uh, Laura, I can. I have to say, you are the best psychologist we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Not that the was, second time I've used this joke. Now. <laughs> that was really interesting, and uh, thank you for putting up with us. I know. Yeah, it's always great to talk with you, Laura. That was really fun. Thank you for challenging me and making me doubt all over again when I believe. <laughs>